Amen. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Text this morning is found in the book of Psalms, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Psalm chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, this tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Again, good morning. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Christian Fellowship. Uh, This summer, we're taking a break from our series in the Gospel of John, and we're doing a summer series in the book of Psalms. Uh, We'll go through the Psalms consecutively week by week uh, through August-ish. And uh, Pastor Dave, as well, is getting a a well-deserved break from preaching and uh, this morning, we have the great privilege of, of hearing Bill Farley. That's Dave's dad. Bill is the founding pastor of Grace Christian Fellowship 20 years ago-ish uh, this year, which is amazing. Uh, I came to uh, Grace Christian Fellowship about 15 years ago, and um, I've, I've often said Bill saved my life because he preached the gospel and he taught me that Christians need the gospel every single day. He taught me how to apply the gospel to my life, to my real life, and it literally saved my life. He also encouraged me and challenged me to, to serve, to lead, and um, Bill is a great shepherd. He's my shepherd, and he's my dear friend. He taught me to grow up and helped me to grow up in Jesus Christ, and so I'm I'm really delighted to welcome Bill Farley. Would you give him a warm welcome, please? Testing, testing. Can you hear me? No? Testing, testing. 
Testing? There we are. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Okay, Psalm 12. Uh, before I forget, and I always forget this, so I have a blog that I do, and, and it may be helpful to some of you. It's, you can find it online. It's just my name, williampfarley.com. You have to have the P in the middle or you won't, won't get it. williampfarley.com. And I blog about once a week. There's articles there on parenting, marriage, Christianity and culture, all kinds of stuff. I've got about 10 years worth of material out there. So if any of you are interested, that's available to you as a resource. Really thankful to be here this morning and honored to be invited to preach this morning. I'll be preaching here next week as well, since the pastors are taking time off. And um, it's just a joy and a pleasure to be to be back in the pulpit. Preaching's what I love, loved about pastoring more than anything else. So let's open with prayer. Let's humble ourselves before God and ask God to bless us. Father, this morning we come to you. I come to you as a sinner saved by grace. And so do my brothers and sisters. We come to you and we ask you, Father, to open our ears this morning to your word. You know what we need to hear. Each of us are different. So, Lord, we ask you to apply your word to us this morning. And I pray for myself that you give me clarity. And I pray, Lord, that uh, to keep me from saying anything I should not say. I, I thank you, Lord, for the, your presence. We pray for an unction from the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask this. We come to you through faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We approach your throne of grace, your grace and mercy through his shed blood, and we ask for this favor. Amen. So this morning's, the title that I put on this psalm is Man's Words Versus God's Words. Because this text is all about David. We don't know the exact situation he was in, we can guess. But it's about David and people that are slandering him and using words to gain power over him. And what could be more um, contemporary to our situation today. Our culture is obsessed with weaponizing speech. And as we have become more secular, gracious speech has just about disappeared from the public forum. In politics and civil discourse, it's not unusual to call our opponents idiots, Nazis, white supremacists, racists, homophobes, if you disagree with somebody on an LGBTQ issue, for example, they'll call you a hater. Well, we're not haters, are we? We're just having a disagreement. Misogynists, haters of women, and on and on and on. Weaponized speech. Now, what, this happens on both sides. The right does this as well. I'm just using this as examples. For example, at a recent SCOTUS protest, protesting the, the recent Dobbs decision, the pro-life crowd, excuse me, the pro-death crowd chanted, Racist, fascist, anti-gay, Christian fascists go away. What's true about that? Nothing. Lies, lies, lies. Are we racist? Heck no. There may be a Christian racist somewhere. I've never met one. And I've been a Christian for 51 years. Fascist? I don't even think these people know what a fascist is. Okay? In fact, I looked it up at the dictionary this week because I wasn't sure myself. And there's all kinds of different definitions of fascist. Anti-gay, we're not anti-gay, we love gay people, don't we? We're against gay behavior, just like we're against uh, adultery. 
just like we love adulterers and we love homosexuals. We're certainly not Christian fascists, but that's, that's what's going on in our culture more and more. That's on a national level. How about on an individual level? Speech. Many of you are familiar with Oswald Chambers, who wrote the famous devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. How many of you are aware of that? Good. He uh, died in about, I think, uh, 1917. He was Scottish. He lived in a little town called Danoon in Scotland. And when he was in his town, one day a young lady accused him of sexual impropriety. And, of course, he had not engaged in any sexual impropriety. An investigation was undertaken, and Oswald Chambers was completely vindicated of this woman's charge against him. But nevertheless, and I'm quoting from an article about him, quote, the damage had been done. Slander of all kinds followed the episode. He was misunderstood, shunned, avoided, and he became the object of whispers throughout the town. Judy's dad, she reminded me yesterday, used to use this illustration about gossip. He said, it's like taking a big pillow full of goose down, cutting open one end and sending the down flying. You'll never recover it. It's lost, it's gone, it's going to do its damage. You can't get the feathers back, can you? And there's thousands of them. And that's the way gossip and slander work. And that's the way it worked in the life of Oswald Chambers. Slander and gossip are deadly. They split more churches than any other sin. So I pray with all my heart that that will never be the case with this church, that slander and gossip would get going. Cruel speech, exaggerations, and critical condescending speech ruin more marriages than all other sins combined. If you do much marriage counseling, you, un- you figure this out pretty quickly. There's some sociologist at the University of Washington that specializes in marriage. I can't remember his name, but I read his book. But they have what's called, what was it? Gottman, Dr. Gottman, that's right. Thanks, John. They have what they call the love lab. And they put marriages in trouble in this love lab. And, they, and uh, it's, a, it's a little apartment on University of Washington. And they record them for a couple days. And Gottman says he can tell after watching a video within 15 minutes whether the marriage is going to make it or not by how they talk to each other. Speech. Proverbs says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. Say that with me. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. If you want life in your marriage, or you want death in your marriage, you want death or life in your parenting, a lot of it depends upon our speech. Well, this was David's predicament when he wrote Psalm 12. It is a prayer for deliverance from the wicked speech of enemies that oppose him. God's response in verse 5 is the heart of this psalm. The theme is simple. God wants us to trust in God's word rather than man's word. God wants us to trust in his word, which this text describes as like silver purified in a furnace on the ground seven times. God wants us to trust in his word rather than man's word. The psalm has four movements, and this will be our outline. Number one, words weaponized. I love that. That's a new term, weaponized in the CIA, weaponized in the FBI. But it works for this psalm. Words weaponized. Number two, words praying. Number three, words of God. And lastly, words of hope. So I'll come back to those. So let's look at verse one through four, words weaponized. should be on the screen there for you. Save, O Lord... For the godly one is gone. 
for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Notice, speech is power, isn't it? And David's enemies understand that. They're going to control him, destroy him with their speech. Now, there's three kinds of sinful speech that concern David in this text. The first is lies. That would be slander. The second would be flattery that he described as a double heart here. In other words, I act real nice when I'm around you, and my speech is smooth as butter when I'm around you, but when my, your back is turned, I'm gossiping, I'm slandering, I'm, my speech is critical. And lastly, boasting, boasting. The motives behind this speech are in verse 4, control, dominance, and power. With our tongues we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Controlling people with our speech. Now, these people understand the biblical principle that we already noted in Proverbs. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. And in this case, they want death to David. Not necessarily physical death, although maybe that too, but they want to destroy him politically. And that is why the ninth commandment reads, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, I started out with our political situation. False witness Racist, fascist Christians, for example. That's a false witness. That's a lie, isn't it? And uh, so on the day of final judgment, the ninth commandment, oh, millions of people, billions of people are going to have to stand before God and give an accounting for breaking the ninth commandment repeatedly. We don't want to be doing that, brothers and sisters. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against other people. Words are deadly. To emphasize this fact, exactly seven texts in Psalms and Proverbs, seven, the, the, per, the number for perfection, not eight, not six, but seven texts, describe words as weapons of war. Words are spears, arrows, clubs, knives, or swords. This is really important. We're going to read these texts because I think this is so important. And I want you, as we're reading this, not to think about other people speaking against you, but to think about how you've used words primarily in your marriage. Psalm 55, predicting Judas' betrayal. David writes, his speech, meaning this is picked up in the New Testament and it's described as a prophecy about Judas. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Speech, a drawn sword. See, life and death or in the power of the tongue. While hiding in the cave from Saul, David wrote Psalm 57. And in verse 4, this is what he said. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of men whose teeth are spears and arrows. Teeth, spears, and arrows. Whose tongues are sharp swords. Spears, arrows, sharp swords, drawn swords. After Saul sent men to David's house to kill him, David wrote Psalm 59. There they are, this is verse 7, bellowing with their mouths, with swords 
in their lips. For who, they think, will hear us? Swords in their lips. This is how God sees our speech when it's negative. Psalm 64, David describes his persecutors as those, and this is verse 3, who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows. Exactly seven texts like this. There's four in the Psalms, there's three more in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Think about your marriage. I, I, I really think God, as we think about the power of speech, I can maybe really help you this morning for you to see how crucial this is in marriage and in parent, women parenting with those you're in closest relationship with. Is your speech like sword thrusts or is it like a healing balm to those around you? Proverbs chapter 25, verse 18. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. And lastly, the seventh text is in Proverbs 30, verse 14. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among mankind. Seven texts illustrating for us and describing for us our speech when it's negative, when it's improper, when it's sinful, as, as deadly. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. David wrote Psalm 12 because persecution usually starts with slander. You remember in the Beatitudes, Jesus, uh, the last Beatitude, he said in Matthew 5.11, blessed are you when others revile you. To revile somebody means to insult them, despise them, or disparage them. And persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. If that hasn't happened to you, it will if you're a Christian. People will speak falsely about you. I remember a friend of mine once saying, his name is Bruce. He used to go to church with him. He worked, works for, he worked for Vista. I think he's retired now. But Bruce said to me, Bill, I don't, I, don't, I don't mind people being upset with me because I'm a Christian, but I hate to be misunderstood because I'm a Christian. And see, that's what always happens. They misunderstand you on purpose. They evil all kinds of, uh, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Well, how did David experience this in a way that provoked Psalm 12? Saul was intensely jealous of David. Remember, Saul was the king and David was serving Saul. But the peop Saul was, David was really effective in warfare and the people were singing, Saul has killed his thousand, but David is 10,000. And Saul, the king, became very jealous of David and began to pursue him with his speech as well as with his sword. Saul tried to turn his son, David's best friend, Jonathan, against him and kill him, and he did that with speech. Doeg the Edomite betrayed David to Saul, and he did that with speech, which eventually ended in the death of a bunch of people. The people of the city of Ziph betrayed David to Saul. Jesus was like David. His enemies also attacked him with words. They accused Jesus of casting out Satan by the power of Satan. Remember that in the Gospels? Uh, Jesus cast the devil out of this, uh, a demon out of this person, and the Pharisees said, well, we, we know how you do that. You're casting demons out by the power of Satan. And Jesus said, whoa, whoa, whoa. A house divided against itself will not stand. So if I'm working with the devil, but I'm casting out demons, I'm working against the devil's plan. That can't be the case. But see, words, 
slander, accusations, being misunderstood. They slandered Jesus before Pilate, and this was, it was speech, slanderous speech that was the basis upon which they crucified him. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 26, verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, slanderers, breaking the ninth commandment. Isn't it ironic that the Jewish people who love the Bible and claim to love the law, the Ten Commandments, destroyed Jesus by breaking the ninth commandment? Slander, false testimony. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple in three days. Destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Again, slander. They deliberately took something. They knew Jesus didn't mean that literally, but they've applied it to him literally. Jesus meant, if when they kill me, I'm God's temple. This is where people meet with God. And when they kill me, I'll rise from the dead in three days. That was the context. But the the Jews twist it and turned it to, to make it about the... And on that basis, they crucified him. Then the Roman soldiers mocked and ridiculed him. Matthew 27. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Speech, negative speech. How has the world treated the church throughout history? Have we fared any better? Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you also. In first century Rome, the Romans accused the early church of practicing cannibalism. And that's because the Christians met in the catacombs and they shared the Lord's Supper. They ate the body and drank the blood of Christ, which we do, but we, it's, we know it's symbolic. And the people that slandered the Christians knew it was symbolic, but they slandered him, and a rumor spread throughout Rome that this Christian sect, they're cannibals. They meet in the catacombs and eat people's corpses. See? Slander. And on the basis of that, there was this tremendous persecution. Then Nero, the emperor, set Rome on fire, and then he blamed it on the Christians. Another lie and slander. And so a great persecution broke out against the Christians. It was the first really big persecution by the Roman uh, populace against the Christians. And uh, it was horrible. Paul and Peter were both died in that persecution. And many of the Christians were, basically they were bundled up in cloth and soaked in kerosene and put on sticks and, and burned alive as human torches. It was bad, really bad. Slander lies behind the whole thing. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. The greatest hurt occurs when fellow believers slander you, sometimes deliberately, sometimes ignorantly. And this was David's experience. It explains the first two verses. So there we are, words weaponized. That's our first point. The other points will be quite a bit shorter. Second point is how David responds with words of prayer in verse 3 and 4. In verse 3, he writes, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? What does David do? How does he respond? He doesn't turn to people. 
He doesn't flee to the courts. He doesn't gossip about those that are gossiping about him. He prays. He prays, cut off their flattering lips. In other words, God, give me justice. God, protect me. God, go before me. God, deal with my enemies. David handled words, weaponized against him with words of prayer to God. And that's what God that's where God wants us to start when people speak negatively about us, slander us, gossip about us, misunderstand us. Our first response should be to go to God in prayer to vindicate us. Our second response should be to go to God in prayer to ask Him to have mercy upon the people that are gossiping about us and speaking negatively about us, to pray that God will convert them, open their eyes to the gospel if they're not Christians, okay? David handled words weaponized against him with words of prayer to God, and that is for us always the ultimate solution. Our third movement in this psalm, words weaponized, words of prayer, and number three, words, the word of God. Now, verse five is in quotation marks, which means it's God's response to David after David turns to him in prayer. And then verse six is David's comment on verse five. So let's read verse five together. It should be on the screen. Because the poor are plundered, this is God speaking, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Then in verse 6, David comments on what God has just said. David says, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. So here's David's choice. He's going to listen to the people that are speaking negatively against him, or he can listen to God who's speaking positively for him. It doesn't take away the pain always of the people speaking negatively against you, but it means essentially you're loved, you'll be loved eternally, and ultimately God will make everything right. In essence, God says, I will answer your prayer, David. I will now arise. I will place David in the safety. In other words, I will take care of you. I will judge your enemies. When will God do this? Well, sometimes God's justice occurs in this life. That was David's experience. God judged Saul and his entire family. A few years later, they all died on Mount Gilboa. Sometimes God defers justice until the the next life. And that was Christ's experience. Jesus cried out to God on the cross. He died not having seen his enemies uh, uh, facing uh, the, the cost of their actions. They weren't uh, being, being uh, disciplined or, vi- or judged by God for their evil speech. But Jesus made it clear that justice will ultimately always occur. And this appears in Matthew chapter 12. Now, this is a scary verse, brothers and sisters. Why don't you read this out loud with me? I tell you, on the day of judgment... People will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Let's read it again. This is very important. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Why is this the case? Well, Jesus said in the previous chapter, Matthew 11, that out of the heart the mouth speaks. 
What comes out of our mouth is a reflection of what's in our heart. So critical speech, a critical heart. Arrogant speech, condescending speech, an arrogant heart. Uh, slander, deliberate slander and lies about people. Uh, cruelty in the heart. A lack of care for people in the heart. Uh, we could just go on and on, couldn't we, with, with understanding it. And so what's happening is Jesus is saying, all your careless words are showing me what's in your heart, and it's your heart that I'll be judging. The speech are just a manifestation of what's in the heart. Psalm 12, verse 6, as I mentioned a moment ago, is David's commentary on God's answer in verse 5. And David says, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in the furnace on the ground, purified seven times. In other words, God has said to David, David, I'll take care of it. I'm going to bring judgment to your enemies. And then David says, God, I trust your word. I trust your response to me. I believe your word is a pure word. Now, I have a bar of silver at home, a little investment that I have, and it has stamped on it 99.99% silver. That means it's not 100% silver. There's a tiny, tiny fraction of something else in this bar besides silver. But with God, that's not the case. It would be 100% pure silver. God's word is 100% trustworthy. God's word is always right. God's word is always accurate. God's word is a faithful word because God is faithful. As with us, God's speech comes out of God's heart, and God's heart is pure and perfect. It's filled with a love of justice, a love for people, a love for mercy. He's, God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, forgiving sin, iniquity, and all kinds of evil. That's God, and so his words reflect that. So here's the question. Who should we listen to? God or the slanderers, mockers, liars, and boasters who use words against us to kill, to destroy, to control, and to dominate. Brothers and sisters, this psalm is very applicable to us today because as our culture gets increasingly anti-Christian and secular, the speech is going to heat up against us. Okay, it's going to get worse and worse. People that, per right now, it's pretty much just on a national level, but it will become more and more personal. This church will be slandered, probably in the media, in the local newspaper, will be called a cult and a sect and a group of people that are uh, way out on the far right, far, far, far right, extreme right edge of society. You'll hear things like that said. Now, hopefully, our culture is going to keep going in the direction it's going. But if it does, that's what's coming. And are you ready for that? Are you going to be like David? The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground seven times. Are you going to put your, your mind and your focus on God and his word, the shortness of this, this life, and the eternal glory that waits those that are faithful to God? Are you going to put your mind on all that negative stuff coming at us? It hasn't really started yet. This has been the pattern in every, every persecuting culture in history. It was the pattern for the early church, and it will be the pattern for us. And lastly, our fourth movement is words of hope in verse 7 and 8. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. That's the word of hope. Verse 8 returns to reality. On every side the wicked prowl. 
as violence is exalted amongst the children of men. So what David's saying here basically is, God, you are the word of hope to me in a fallen world. I live in a fallen world. Yes, God, you've spoken to me, and you've said that you will vindicate me, you will take care of me, but I know I've got to get up tomorrow morning and continue to live in this fallen world where there's slander and lies and gossip and all kinds of abuse of speech. But verse 7, you, O Lord, will keep me. You will guard us from this generation forever. That's our hope, isn't it? So so verse 7 and 8 take us back to reality. We live in a fallen world. So here's the question. Since this is true, we live in a fallen world, will we focus on the words of fallen man or will we focus on God's promise to arise, to help us? That is what David did. It is what God wants us to do. Verse 7 is David's David's word of hope. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. Let's close with just a couple comments of application. First, you will be slandered. You either have been slandered in the past, and you will be slandered again in the future. If you've never been slandered and gossiped about, the day's coming when you will, if you live as a faithful Christian. Matthew chapter 5, the last beatitude. I challenge you to read it sometime today. Jesus said, blessed are you when men speak evil about you and slander you. Why would he say blessed? Because that means you're the genuine article. You're a real Christian. You live a life distinctive enough that people know you're a Christian and they're speaking evil about you. And that's a, a positive sign. Not only will you be slandered, but the second application is when this happened, God wants us to be like David, to turn to God in prayer. And also, if there's any truth in the slander, to confess that to the Lord. God, okay, they, this is a half-truth. They've taken a little truth about my life like Jesus saying, destroy this temple and in three days... In three days, I'll raise it up again. They distorted the truth completely, but there was, Jesus did say that, although it was greatly misunderstood. You will be misunderstood too, and sometimes accusations against you will have an element of truth in it. If there is truth, say, God, thank you for calling this to my attention, and turn to God and ask his forgiveness. Thirdly, you have sinned against others with your speech. You have used it as a weapon, and you will do it again. You will participate in slander, in gossip, in boasting. How do I know that? Well, not, I can say that just from my own personal experience, but I can also say because the Bible tells us that very clearly in James chapter 3, verse 2. He tells us we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his tongue. Then in verse 8, 7 and 8, James continues. For every kind of beast and bird, a reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. That's me. That's you. Is it getting better with me? Yes. But it's still a mixed bag. And it's a mixed bag with you, too. Uh, the other night in the car, and remember, I've been working on this sermon all week. Judy and I were driving across town, and I started to slander. Uh, I can't tell you who this is. I accused this person. I accused this person of being arrogant. 
and uh, elitist. And so then I kept driving. I thought, oh, Bill, here you're speaking on this subject Sunday, and here you are. So I turned to Judy and said, sweetie, please forgive me. That was horrible what I just said. I should have never said that. I, I'm sure that wasn't true what I said about this person. And I apologized, apologized, apologized. See, that, that's the way we are, aren't we? We're, we're sinners. And the first way sin shows up in our life, our imperfections, is we, we can't control our speech. We can get, improve. It can get better. And the hope is when we die and we see the Lord, John chapter, 1 John chapter 3 tells us, when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is, and our speech will be perfect, because our heart will be perfect. And out of that perfect, loving heart will come nothing but an overflow, a perfect, loving speech towards God and towards others. Okay? So that's the third thing. You will sin against others. Minimize it as much as you can. And fourth application is the most important place, as I've already mentioned, to de-weaponize speech is in your family, with your spouse and with your children. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Change criticism of your spouse into praise. Yes, there are times when we need to be critical, but we need to minimize that. We need to give three words of praise and affirmation, or four, for every criticism we make, both to our spouse and to our children. Why don't we do that? Because we're proud and arrogant. We think we're better than our spouse or our children. We think they commit, we see all their sins really clearly, but we don't see our own sins at all. And so we criticize, criticize, criticize. The more we see our own sins, we become merciful and gracious towards those we live with, both our children and our spouse, and that begins to transform everything. In other words, the more humble we become, the more gracious our speech becomes. Change, transform complaining into thanksgiving. Instead of complaining about your children and your spouse, yeah, they're sinners, yep, they don't do everything right, but be thankful. Because none of us deserve to be married. In hell, there's no marriage. In hell, you're just all alone, isolated from everyone else by your arrogance and your pride. But in this world, there's marriage. We have a spouse. We have children. We're sinners. We deserve hell. We don't deserve heaven. And here we are with families, and we complain, we complain, we complain. Now, obviously, I'm not saying there aren't sometimes things to complain about, but I'm saying, you remember in the Old Testament in the wilderness, the Jews complained that God struck down 18,000 Jews with fire from the, from the pillar of, of the Shekinah glory that accompanied for complaining. Okay? Instead of being grateful and thankful, they were complaining. When God was feeding them with manna and the rock followed them through the wilderness that was giving them water and God was present with, as a pillar of fire over the tabernacle with them day to day and all they could do was complain. And so God was all very happy with that and he brought judgment eventually. And fifth and lastly, if life and death are in the power of the tongue, and if we cannot control our tongues perfectly, what are we to do? Well, if others have weaponized their speech against us, how should we respond? What is the solution? The solution is the gospel, isn't it? We're needy sinners. I am and you are. And we need a Savior. And our speech is prima facie evidence of that. Jesus is the only person 
who never sinned with his lips. He's the only person who fulfilled Psalm chapter 12, verse 6, because his divine, his words were, quote, pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. That was Jesus. Now, David's using that to describe God who's spoken to him, but the God that spoke to him is Christ. Okay? And so Jesus came, and he showed us what it looks like for somebody's speech to be pure. Now, that doesn't mean it was easy speech. You know, he called the Pharisees snakes, for example. I mean, he was, he, sometimes he was critical, but he was always, when he was critical, it was never from a position of arrogance or cruelty. When you, the good news is this. When we believe the gospel and repent of sin, God imputes his speech to us. This is the best news I could possibly give you this morning. If you if you're, understand your own heart, and you understand your own speech, and you understand how seriously God takes your speech, and then you understand how impossible it is for you to ever get your speech together, you recognize that you need a Savior, and you've got a Savior, and He's a wonderful Savior. When you put your faith in Christ, what happens to you? Your faith unites you with Him. Your faith unites you with His speech, and God the Father credits His speech to you, purified in the furnace on the ground seven times. Perfect speech, 100% pure, not 99.9%, 100% pure speech. And God, that's how God sees you. And that's how God the Father accepts you, even though you sin every day with your speech. Is that good news? Is that good news? That's good news. Okay, if you don't understand the problem, that's the best news you could ever hear. In addition, on the cross, because God loves us, because the Bible tells us God is love, because the Bible tells us that God's Love surpasses knowledge, Ephesians chapter 3. God sent his son to the cross to bear the judgment your speech deserves. Your speech and mine. And a judgment previously promised in Psalm chapter 12, verse 5. Remember God said he would judge David's, the people that spoke negatively against David? But we already read Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus said, God will judge all of us for our speech. Psalm 12.5, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. In other words, God is saying, don't worry, David, I'll take care of it. I'll judge your enemies. And he will, unless they put their faith in the Savior to come. And then we have again, Matthew chapter 12, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This means there's only two types of people, and this, I know this is very black and white. The gospel brings us to this. There's no other conclusion. Those whom God will judge on the last day for their slander, their gossip, their complaining, their arrogance, their condescending comments to others, their criticism, their unbelief, etc., and those who turn to Jesus and let him take that judgment in their place. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Christ will be our judge. Christ says to me, Bill, why should I let you into heaven? Lord, you shouldn't let me into heaven. 
my heart is impure, and out of my heart, is, my speech has manifested it my whole life, and it's, it's been a mixed bag, a really bad mixed bag. And I know you don't accept mixed bags. No, I don't accept mixed bags. But I believe the gospel. And I believe that when I believe the gospel, my, I was united to you, and your speech became mine. In your sight, you must, because you are just, let me into heaven. No, I'm saying must as if God, Christ is reluctant. He's not reluctant at all. And Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You believe the gospel, and that's why I came, because God is love. I came to save all those who will humble themselves and admit that they have this problem, and I have come to save them and be the solution to their problem. That applies to speech. That applies to every other sin in your life. That's the good news of the gospel that we so delight in. So in conclusion, all of this thing makes one thing really clear. God is love. God is love. And also, God is justice. Because you won't get into heaven unless your sins get judged. But you won't take the judgment. Christ will take it in your place because, you're, because you put your faith in Christ. Let's close in prayer and ask God for mercy.